Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is an encore performance going back to 2015, speaking with Charlotte Wood. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to those lands, stolen lands. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, Final Draft, the Great Conversations podcast, we're all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm taking you back five years when I was a much younger broadcaster before the podcast even existed. But if you want to help people discover new books and go back into the archives, discover the great Australian writing that we cover, you can give us a rating, you can leave a comment, or word of mouth, tell another book lover about this podcast. It helps get the word out and share more Australian writing with more people. Now, today on the show, we are going to be looking at an absolute modern classic of Australian writing. Charlotte Wood's The Natural Way of Things, it won just so many different awards. Uh, it won the Stella Prize most outstandingly, but also it was, uh, it was awarded the New South Wales Premier Award. It was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin. It's just an incredible, incredible novel. In the desert somewhere in outback Australia, 10 women awake. They've been drugged. They've been transported against their will. As these women slowly get their bearings, they come to realise that there is a common thread, a reason why they are there. But can they survive? Can they outlast the brutality of their captors? That's Charlotte Wood's The Natural Way of Things. Join me as we go back to 2015 and rediscover the natural way of things. I am joined in the studio by Charlotte Wood, and we are here today to discuss her new novel, The Natural Way of Things. Good morning, Charlotte. Hi, Andrew. Now, we were discussing before we went on air that I absolutely love The Natural Way of Things, but it's it's not a book that um, that is necessarily a feel-good, happy book. I love the way it challenged me. I love the way it drew me in and I almost I came out the other side. I almost felt like I was spat out the other side, and it was, oh, what just happened? Um, are you getting that a lot? <laughs> I am getting that a lot. It's 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 been a really full on response from people that I've been um, sort of really gratified by. Lots of people are kind of coming out the other side, saying, "Oh my God, I need to talk to somebody um, about this book," or I feel kind of. Um, drained or um, just a lot of churning emotions and like it's some people have I'm just getting the sense that that this book has had a lot more power than other books that I've written Mm. that people feel very or some people are almost sort of bodily affected Mm. by um, yeah by the story I very much got that that visceral response myself so there's no lukewarm crazy it's one or the other no that's right yeah it's it's been um astonishing to me actually especially i've got to say a response from some young women that who've been kind of contacting me and telling me and and one amazing young woman made this kind of video letter to me and put it on youtube about how the book affected her and just um very intense responses 
And that's what I want to get to because I'd like to talk about the story because the story in and of itself is amazing. It's it's a fantastic story, um, even if you take away any sense of it sitting in a society and a place, which it very much does. But when we put that in as well, there is something that uh, very real that it has to say about culturally our um, our attitudes toward women and women's place in society, and also in a very timely uh, manner, I think, with the national debate that is is now huge. It's gained so much momentum around ideas of violence against women, mm-hmm. domestic violence, and I guess male privilege in the patriarchy. But can we start in the outback? Mm-hmm. Because you, you take us to a literal and a metaphorical scorched earth. Uh, that at times it feels distinctly alien, or it felt it felt alien to me. But you remind us through glimpses of normalcy that it's it's actually our own inhospitable continent. How did this become your world for the natural way of things? Well, I think there was a few things going on in terms of the setting. Um, some things I was conscious of, and other things I only realised really after I'd finished writing it. The conscious things were that. The very first spark for this story came from a real girls' prison that was running in the 1960s and 70s in the town of Hay in western New South Wales. And that was a really brutal, horrible place. It was actually in the town. Um, But uh, So I heard a radio documentary about this place that was run by the state that really brutalised young women who were perceived to be Um, They were actually charged with a charge called being exposed to moral danger, which for many of them meant that they had been sexually assaulted in the community and then the response of the government was to lock them up. So Um, they had been assaulted by someone, but they were locked up. Yeah, and their sort of um, crime, in inverted commas, was to report that to somebody. You know, it might have been that they were assaulted by their dad or by somebody else in the community and... uh, by speaking up about it, that was not on, you know. So these were these were perceived as, you know, fallen women or, um, you know, promiscuous, troublesome girls. And they were young. They were all sort of teenage girls. So I heard about this place and I was horrified and disturbed in a way that is good for writing novels. In that you kind of can't understand something and need to try and work it out. So I guess I had the setting of Hay in my mind, and I've never been to Hay, but I did grow up in the country, and I've lived a little bit in the central west of New South Wales. So I had um, my own kind of imaginary um, idea of of the landscape in mind, but I didn't want to write about the real place. I wanted to write about a completely imagined place, and then I moved the setting from of the book from the past to a sort of present slash future, maybe. We don't um, really know. There's, no, we don't know. There are no markers. No. And I wanted this isolation to be complete. So um, the, the the girls in my story wake up. They've been drugged, which is what happened to the girls in Hay. They were put drugged, taken from the Parramatta Girls' Home in Sydney, put on a train, taken to Hay, and basically th- you know, the key was thrown away and they were totally brutalised. Um, and the people of Hay could hear the screams of the girls at night. Um, and But it was, well, they're just bad girls, so they deserve what they get. So, But I wanted, you know, narratively speaking, it was important to have my place completely isolated. 
So I've got this place in the middle of nowhere. Mm. I don't know. Some readers have said, where is it? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. An imaginary it's a vast continent. Yeah. Um, but I think a much more subconscious reason that I had for setting it in such a place was that actually over time the girls in my story come to see the beauty of that landscape. At first they're all, my girls are all urban contemporary urban girls who've never been out of the city and um, so when they get there it is like going to the moon but over time especially some of them especially um, Yolanda and Verla my main characters begin to sort of enter into the landscape and and start to understand that there is beauty possible in this place Mm -hmm. and I think for me you know this is the thing that I realized after I'd written it I needed to set it somewhere like that so that there was beauty possible for me to see as the writer so that it wasn't a totally bleak um you know it's a dark story that's for sure but it's I don't think that ultimately it's a bleak story I Mm. think there is beauty and triumph and sort of possibility in amongst this darkness and I feel like this is going to be one of the many times in our conversation that we're going to touch on your title the natural way of things and and I think that might have been one of the interpretations you were going for, the beauty of, of that landscape. Um, Verla and Yolanda, just these amazing two characters. When we initially meet them, as you say, that, that both girls wake up, they've been drugged, uh, they're taken to another room, they have no idea what's going on, they have their heads shaved. Um, their impressions are, are juxtaposed and they see each other and we're set up in a very adversarial manner, um, at first at mm. least. What struck you? What drew you to those two characters, those two personas, to be your protagonists? Um, that's a good question. I knew I wanted to write about a friendship in a place like this. You know, when I thought about the, the Hay Institution for Girls, one of the cruelest things, I mean, there were so many sadistic things that happened there, but uh, in, in part of the rules of that place where the girls were never allowed to be closer to each other than, say, a yard or something, so that even in, you know, and one of the official punishments was that they were not allowed to make friends, you know, that this, making sure they were separate, they couldn't speak to each other, they couldn't form bonds and friendships that just, you know, <laughs> the cruelty of that. Um, so I wanted to write about how these young women pulled out of their normal lives for something, some obscure punishment they don't understand, um, how they form a very deep friendship that sort of transcends their circumstances. And Yolanda and Verla are very different from each other. Um, Yolanda is a, a, a girl of the body. She's always been very stunningly beautiful, which has turned out to be rather a burden for her because it's got her into all kinds of trouble with men including um, a situation that she found herself in with um, some footballers and this sort of created the public scandal when she spoke out about what happened to her Uh, that was her sort of crime uh, Verla is a much more highly educated girl she had an affair with a politician and was completely up for it, was completely consensual. She was um, in love with him, believed him to be in love with her, and she feels quite separate from the other girls when she gets to this place that 
she's um, superior to them, basically, because she feels that her situation was different to theirs. They were all fucked over, she says, but she was not. She chose her relationship. She didn't see it as abusive or any of that. So she... And at the beginning, those two girls are really holding themselves separate from all the others. The others have had various public scandals involving a powerful man or men, um, some of which were consensual, some not. And that's the kind of... They understand fairly rapidly that's the link between all of them. But Verla and Yolanda both sort of resolve separately in themselves that they are going to get out of this place. And part of that survival is going to involve um, not forming bonds with anybody else there. Mm. But over time, you know, under the um, extreme um, conditions that they're in, they are drawn to each other and they form a very deep friendship. I really got the sense that the idea that they wouldn't form bonds... Uh, was a way of protecting themselves. As counterintuitive as that may may seem, they felt that the more they uh, allowed themselves to be a part of what they were living, they were then denying or letting go of the life that they they always assumed they were going to return to at any given moment. Yes. I mean, I think that they, you know, part of the tragedy for all of these girls is that they've been walking around their lives thinking that they are individual, unique human beings. And what they're told by being put in this place is that you're all the same and you're all one thing, and that is a slut who should shut a mouth. Mm. And so in holding themselves apart, they're, they're kind of trying to retain something of their own um, individual self, you know, the selfhood that is being taken from them. And I think you're right, by protecting themselves, you know, they, they, it takes everyone a while to understand what the hell's going on here. And um, in order to protect themselves, they can't really trust anybody else. Hmm. The revelation of why, why they're in there, you drip feed that to us. It, it takes a really long time for us to understand that each woman is connected by, I guess, this uh, either uh, social, psychological or physical violence that's been perpetrated against them, but... I would probably, uh, I want to I want to ask, I challenged myself when I was reading to, to understand it, not just that this happened, because if it was just the violence that was committed against them that got landed them in there, this prison would be overflowing. We know that from our society, that violence against women is alarmingly commonplace. Their true crime, their true transgression on, I guess we might say, another interpretation on the natural way of things is that they either spoke out or that it became public is this in a way is this a social media scarlet letter yeah that's a really interesting way of putting it It, this is their real crime that they have spoken out Mm. and you know this was something that came to me when I was so I'd started writing the book said in the past with this hay institution in mind and I was writing away and the writing was terrible. It just wasn't living. It was just dead, sludgy, very bad, terrible writing. So, you know, you try all kinds of things to make it come alive. And But one of the things that sort of struck me, like suddenly, like this bucket of cold water over me, I suddenly, because my antenna was up for this idea that these g- girls had been put in there because they complained about something, um, I suddenly started receiving all the messages from our culture that are out there all the time. And one of those was um, the case 
of the young army cadet who, you know, had had sex with someone that she thought was a private, um, you know, moment, and that was broadcast to the guy's friends and filmed. And but it wasn't that that was the terrible thing. It was that she spoke out about it and she was punished. Mm. So she was punished first by the army who, before anything happened to the guys involved, hauled her over the coals professionally, disciplined her, humiliated her in front of her um, her peers. And then she was um, blamed by her peers and she became known as that Skype slut. Mm. And that absolutely infuriated me. And it made me see that oh, this attitude isn't gone. You know, I was sort of merrily riding away trying to make this story come alive because it was this thing in the past. And then I just thought, oh, my God, it's not over. That attitude is well and truly alive. Then around the same time, um, the um, David Jones CEO, Mark McInnes, sexually harassed a young woman employed by David Jones, and she spoke up and, you know, exercised her legal right to take legal action and... Then she was labelled a gold digger and a publicity hunter. And and I actually happened to meet a young woman who worked at David Jones around that time. And, uh, you know, we asked her just in passing, oh, what do you think about, you know, what's going on? And she said, oh, we all hate that girl. You know, we basically she should have just shut up. Um, she's, you know, it was sort of it felt to me like uh being in a family where a, a kid speaks up, you know, stands up to a kind of tyrannical father and everyone else is thinking, shut up, you're just going to make it worse for everybody. So this punishing of the, um, of the woman for A, being sexual and B, speaking out or v- speaking out against unwanted sexual um, stuff, that this was just absolutely alive and it continues you know every week I've got a new example to talk about you know on the radio it's kind of amazing how once your eyes and ears are really open to it you it's unstoppable yeah victim blaming is is something that uh, the the word the two words the phrase has become very much a part of our vocabulary and we're starting I think to understand more about this idea that uh, somehow we make the victim culpable for their own crime I I feel like there's momentum, at least in the way we talk about it, if not the way we deal with it. Yeah, I hope so. Mm. But the the um, the relationship and also the punishment relationship uh, is something that is very prominent in the natural way of things. And of course, any prison must have its guards. And Bonser and Teddy, your guards, um, Bonser just being an absolutely fantastic name for... It reminded <laughs> me of Dickens in the way the name evokes the character. Uh, you reminded me of the, the classic prison psychological experiment. Is this descent into cruelty? Is that a, a part of the natural way of things? Or is it perhaps something that maybe blokes need to look a little bit more inwardly on the the attitudes that we can have dragged out of us because it really doesn't take Bonser very long at all to become absolutely cruel. Yeah, Bonser, it's funny you say that about the name. It just came to me like that, you know, which often doesn't happen. Often I have struggle with names of characters, but that came immediately. I did want the sense that, that the... Power was shiftable in this scenario, and that the real power lay with this sort of obscure organisation that runs this place Hardings. called Hardings mm. International. And Bonsa and Teddy don't even really understand what they're supposed to do, or it is this kind of 
um, bureaucratic, um, strange. They, you know, have these communications somehow from Hardings, but Hardings never actually shows up and it becomes very difficult for them. I did want to think about how being put in a position of power can brutalise that person as well as the people that they are then able to control or brutalise. And I have to say that when, you know, while all the time I was writing this book, I'm looking around at, at our culture for images or anything about incarceration or imprisonment. And of course, most of the images and commentary that we hear about incarceration at the moment is about our detention centres. And I often thought about the people who work in those places and how obviously it's awful for the people um, imprisoned there, but I also think it's it must do something terrible to your soul to work in a place like that. And I remembered years and years and years ago um, a person talking about the Woomera Detention Centre on radio um, and this um, I think it was a nurse or someone or a doctor and I remember this person said Woomera is an evil place and evil is done there and I remember those words exactly and how they really struck me and thought um, you know and we're hearing you know the people who are brave enough to speak about what's happening in Nauru and Manus Island who come back and break their confidentiality agreements and all of that those people are traumatised you know so I wanted to explore you know Bonser is a horrible horrible man but because he's given the power he becomes more horrible mm. like if there was any kind of control of his um, uh, his um, responsibilities he wouldn't be able to do the things he does there's this strange uh, moment I feel like in the book where the, the cruelty it flips and it, it becomes so much worse and it's the moment where some of uh we learn more about Bonser and Teddy and it was really interesting to hear you draw the parallels with Australia's offshore and onshore detention facilities because they very much try to keep it uh corporate and bureaucratic and you remove the human and somehow it's it's the system doing this it's Mm. not the person Mm. but when we we learn a little bit more about Bonser and Teddy we learn Teddy's a, a backpacker Bonser's barely more than a kid uh, and they, we start to see their personal effects. The, the women are allowed into the house and their personal effects start to emerge. And, and Bonser very quickly uses that that personal moment to appropriate Teddy's... But Teddy, it, it doesn't seem, had ever thought anything could be used as a weapon, but suddenly mm. Bonser has mm. this terrible weapon and I feel like he takes it up a notch mm. then. Mm. I mean, this is at a point where they're all starting to go pretty mad mm. because the... You know, initially it seems that there's some semblance of of routine and um, and um, orders that are being obeyed, even if they're kind of vague and weird, and nobody really knows why. And the girls are set to manual labour building a road, um, and but soon it becomes clear that Hardings, the company, um, which Hardings has the the slogan that's printed on tea towels and on plates and things called, and the slogan is dignity and respect in a safe and secure environment. That's a slogan that I took from the website of Serco, which is one of the runs detention centres for our government. Um, and it always seemed to me just completely bizarre that this sort of, you know, loving corporate language is used about these terrible places. Um, 
But yeah, so at a certain point, it suddenly becomes clear to Bonser and Teddy that Hardings has actually forgotten about them too. And that, in fact, the food has started to run out. Uh, the power goes off. They are all stuck in this place. The, the only thing keeping them all on this property is a huge and very effective electric fence. And the power does not go off for the fence, but it goes off inside the compound. So this is a point where there's a big shift in the power structures where Bonser and Teddy and Nancy, the so-called nurse who works there as well, realise that they are trapped, as trapped as the girls are. And then all kinds of, to me, interesting shifts were able to happen between the girls um, yeah, and the guards. Mm. And the fantasy of control is played out throughout the novel and, and in all the characters, their relationships with each other, but also their, their relationship with themselves, their idea of self-control. I was wondering, what were you trying to say about control? And particularly, I think it, it felt like gendered control and the power of sexual violence, because again, Bonser very quickly resorts to the implied threat of sexual violence to control the women. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a threat from the beginning. And I think, you know, as soon as you have women prisoners and male guards, there is that threat, especially when um, the outside, you know, sort of society's controls are completely absent. Um, I also did not want to write a book full of sexual violence. And um, actually one of the criticisms of the book um, that's been made is that kind of there isn't enough of that. And I understand where that review is coming from because it was about sort of logic. But I also am really aware of what it does to women readers to have to read graphic, horrible you know, sexual assault stuff and I didn't want to put people through that but the or myself, frankly. Um but the threat is there and the discussion you know, well I know the discussion is happening from this book about these issues without having to resort to that. Um but Bonsa is weirdly um both um sort of horribly uh, sexist and probably misogynistic, although I use that word really sparingly. Um, but he's also really needy and kind of has these weird romantic ideas about women um, that are sort of sad. You know, he's he's both a powerful figure, but to me, he's also really a very sad figure. It felt like his power came from that deep insecurity. He, he has to exercise it lest it be exercised against him. Mm. Um, I was really interested by what you just said there about why you didn't want to really graphically depict uh, sexual violence. And I was wondering, is there also a danger in graphically depicting it and portraying this idea that this, this and this alone is what is sexual violence? Because I, I felt the book was cover to cover. It is sexually violent. Um, just because you don't have penetrative acts mm. portrayed doesn't take away from the, the sexual violence yeah. that pervade, pervades the novel, but also the society that the novel has grown out of. Yeah, it's a kind of psychic violence that mm. is going on through the whole book. And certainly, you know, the odd bit of physical violence. Mm. Um, but, you know, the thing about writing about this stuff, it was so hard to do because... 
I, I interviewed Christos Tolkis the other day for a magazine that I run about about his book Dead Europe, which is about really deep racism and anti-Semitism. And we were talking about how frightening it is to write a book where you enter into that thing so much that you feel that you are that you are racist, deeply racist, or that I was actually deeply misogynistic myself. You know, it was really a strange and very disturbing experience but I kind of had to go there in my own mind um, this is kind of a garbled answer but it's I didn't want to yeah I mean I wanted to talk about how um, you know the the loathing of women takes place on all kinds of levels that are deeply painful to us deeply hurtful and you don't have to be you know raped and beaten to be hurt by generalized misogyny Mm. Um, but also I wanted to explore women's own self-hatred you know and there's a lot of you know I, I know it in myself I see it in all my friends we are so we have such an onslaught of negativity about being women that it's very hard to um, resist all of those messages your whole life and have a completely healthy and optimistic view of yourself as a woman. Yeah, I feel like you really effectively both utilise and subvert the language that we get through the media and, and power structures that situate women as victims and also, in a weird way, perpetrators of the violence that's committed against them. Uh, and there's a moment where you, you are reflecting on what must be happening in the outside world and what must be thought of these, these women, presumably, who are, are missed? And are they... I'm, I'm actually just going to open it up because I, this, this, amongst all of the, the passages, really struck me. Um, you know, would they be called missing? Uh, would it be said they disappeared, were lost? Would it be said they were abandoned the way people say a, a girl was attacked? And the way we... We, we basically, we, we take this passive voice and we completely remove the subject. We completely remove the perpetrator and situate the, the object of the sentence, who is the person who has been attacked yeah. at the beginning. We put them in the subject and we make them the subject of their own violence. How destructive is this way of speaking and thinking? Well, it really, um, I think it's really powerful and it's something that we don't think about. You know, language that we don't really think because we think, oh, the bad thing that happens to women is if someone beats them up. Words are kind of like, oh, that's you know the least of our problems. When in fact, the words are the things that create this sense that it is the natural way of things for women to be disregarded. Or, you know, just this morning I saw something on Twitter about and a news report about a 14-year-old girl being raped, gang raped, raped yesterday, the day before, whatever. And thank goodness a policeman the first time I've heard a policeman say this, um, was being interviewed on Melbourne Radio and the uh, interviewer read out some text messages from listeners, presumably some of these would be women, saying, well, what was a 14-year-old girl doing in a park at four o'clock in the morning? And the policeman said, why are we asking that question? Why are we not asking what were four young men doing sexually assaulting a girl at Four in the morning, so this thing of taking out the ma- the perpetrator of the violence from the sentence 
is actually utterly reflected in the, the attitude of the way we discuss these things. And when we're talking about, you know, every week when there's another one or two women mm. killed, and I've just done it then, using the passive voice, yeah. you know, I would like us to be saying every week an Australian man kills a woman. You know, every week two Australian men kill a woman. It's not the way we talk about it. And I remember hearing on TV, you know, a really well-intentioned report saying every week two women are killed by violence. Mm. Like, yeah, just random violence is floating around mm. in the air and these women are putting themselves in the way of it. And, you know, it's just very interesting to think about if we change our language to put the focus on the people who are doing the damage what might that do to our understanding of it? Yeah. This this horrible uh, sense that we've inherited of, of politeness and it serves us well in our day-to-day life when we meet new people and we are overly polite and it, it lets us sort of navigate. Uh, uh, then when it becomes a societal construct, we're afraid to offend. We're even afraid to offend, offend perpetrators of violence, people that are out there doing these horrible things. I have so much I want to talk about here. I'm, I'm conscious of the time. Uh, we d- I, I want to just briefly touch on, we talked about the visceral quality of the novel. Um, and I found that a real feature of your language, particularly as the situation in the camp became more desperate. I felt like your imagery became more embodied uh, and, and brutal. <laughs> but also your phrasing, it was really taut. So it was I was tense and I felt very in myself and it, it was uncomfortable. <laughs> Did you need to work yourself up to impart these tensions? No, you just inhabit it, you know. Mm. I I felt it was a hard book to write for all kinds of reasons, and one of the reasons was that I felt claustrophobic. You know, if you're actually imagining as fully as you can being the person that you're writing about, mm. you I've come to understand that there are bodily effects on you, you know, that you know, we all know that there's just more and more research about the mind body stuff. And I um, have heaps of neck and back problems and just from computer work, but also just from tension. And by, you know, my physio and osteo and all that said, actually your back issues are not really physical, they're mental. (laughs) And I totally agree that I know when I'm tense, then my body seizes up. Um, And I think inhabiting this very claustrophobic, frightening... um, sometimes violent world, lonely um, world, that it, I mean, I don't remember concentrating on the language except, uh, again, in terms of um, one of those things that I realised afterwards, I was always very worried about this being such a dark book. And I was talking to a writer friend about it one day and she said, well, why don't you read me a book, bit of this intolerably dark material? Um, and I read this bit and she said, see what you don't see is how beautiful it is and I realized later that I that in my subconscious mind I needed to bring in as much beauty in the language as I could in order to balance the sort of grimness of the material and you know I think I have a kind of natural way with um, imagery and that sort of stuff and I sort of just let that really come up as much as I could. I feel like what you just said there is beautifully also reflected in the, the cover for The Natural Way of Things, which is... It's a it, wonderful cover. It's absolutely beautiful. It's it's this um, botanical drawing. It's something that I would imagine you see in a Frankie magazine. Uh, or it's something very like lush and pretty and 
and then there's a knife sticking in one of the flowers and there's a rabbit trap. So there's the, there's the darkness and there's the beauty. It and just, it's when you look more closely, I mean, from a distance, the cover just, it's, you know, it's a sort of dusky pink. Mm. It's got these lush, gorgeous flowers and leaves and drooping vines and things. And then as you look more closely, you can see that they're entwined in amongst all of that. There's chains and keys and... Um, poisonous mushrooms. Poisonous mushrooms. <laughs> and, yeah, sort of the threat is only there when you look a little bit more closely. Yeah. Now, Charlotte, I have almost studiously avoided uh, discussing the inevitable conclusion. Every book comes to an end, and, and that's because... Spoilers. Yeah. Uh, but, but also because you play with how the story might end as we, as we get towards it. And the beautiful thing about when you still read physical books is you can see the end approaching mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. wonder and you, you play with that. Um, I don't want to talk about it because people need to read it. But I just wanted to ask, do you have anything you want to add about, uh, about the, the novel and, and a return, perhaps, to the natural way of things? Um. Look, the ending is something that people really want to talk to me about and it it was a kind of deliberately provocative ending, I guess. Um, and, I mean, I think I had I had a gift in the narrative set up in that as soon as you have people in a prison from the beginning, you have one very urgent question, which is are they going to get out or are they not? So obviously the narrative was always going to be driving towards the answer to that question. Um and I think the way I answered it said some things that some people found very difficult um, and confusing or ambiguous. Um, and I'm happy that that's, you know, that there's a lot of... It's interesting when people talk to me about the ending, there are sort of two ways they put their focus um, well, I can't actually say anymore without giving anything away. But, but That's absolutely it's, fine. Yeah, it's interesting which people go which way with the ending. Mm. So it's and it's it's certainly you know I've done all, I've done a lot of public speaking about it with people who have read it and who haven't, and it's always very difficult in audience question mm. time when someone wants to talk about the ending. So we end up having this little subgroup who've read it come and talk to me afterwards who are desperate to talk about the ending. Mm. I think that was possibly the the perfect way to discuss the ending. I think many people are now challenging themselves to go out and pick up the natural way of things. Charlotte, thank you so much for coming in thank and speaking to me. Thank you for such a lovely interview, Andrew. I have been chatting with Charlotte Wood about her new novel, The Natural Way of Things. It is a cracker. I... I, I made a very bold. I, I spoke about this on Sunday breakfast uh, with Nick Healy. We do a we do a Sunday book club, um, and it was before I knew I was chatting to you. I made the very bold prediction that I, I think we're going to see this at least on something like the Stella Prize shortlist next year. I I'm, I'm picking it as win. It's got to win something. That's that's my prediction because <laughs> <laughs> I just I just loved it, and people should listen to me. Well, you're a gambler, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. That's it for this great conversation with Charlotte Wood, taking us back to 2015 and the release of The Natural Way of Things. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people and 2SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. This show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to keep up with us, keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on all the socials, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We are at Final Draft 2SER. If you click subscribe in your podcast app, there will be a new great conversation every week. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for indulging me as I 
looked back like this. It's been a long journey to get here. The podcast has been around for about two and a half years. The show, I've been working on this show now for, I think, almost eight years. And uh, I learned a lot revisiting this podcast that I, I think I've improved, at least in my audio design. I had to do a lot of work on the audio for this episode. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.